Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Uh, tell me something, Christian. Yeah. What's your relationship with the exorcism? Well, or exorcism in general. <laughs> it's funny you should ask. Uh, I, I think I've told this story on this podcast before, but, uh, I, when I was 12 going into 13 years old, went to a Baptist private school in Florida mm-hmm. and they very much taught us as students there that demon possession was real, uh, and to constantly be on guard from demon possession. Uh, and they would, um, tell us stories of people that they had performed exorcisms on and really kind of, you know, literally put the fear of God into us. And I had this experience where my family went on vacation that same year that I was attending that school. We went skiing and I wasn't wearing, um, what do you call them? Snow goggles. Right. Uh, when I was skiing and it was a really sunny day and the sun was bouncing off of the white snow. Uh, and I didn't realize it. I was a little kid and I got snow blindness that night. I went blind in the middle of the night. Uh, I woke up and I was blind and I couldn't see anything. And because I had been at the school, I was utterly convinced that I was possessed by a demon and that I couldn't see anything because the demon was in control of my body and the demon was seeing out through me. I really, uh, I, it freaked me out. I was pretty traumatized by the whole thing. I was young. Um, and therefore the movie, the exorcist Mm -hmm. was something I avoided until I was 30. Yeah. I pretty much, I, I always, Knew it was out there. As, as you know, I'm a horror fan. Uh, and I, I just always avoided The Exorcist. I was like, I know I like scary movies, but I just don't know if I can handle that one. And I finally worked up the courage to watch it. And I, I, and I loved it. And it's, it, uh, I, I, I really, uh, found that there's something there in terms of my storytelling mm-hmm. that I wanted to use that moment from when I was 12 years old and was so terrified of demon possession that I wanted to incorporate into some of my stories. How about you? Cause I know you've told this, uh, on a previous episode about exorcism for oh, stuff yes. to blow your mind. I listened to it, but then you've told me this story as well yourself. You actually saw an exorcism. Well, it was uh it was a, a sort of exorcism uh what we're talking about here is a a backroom exorcism at a late 90s first baptist church coffee house uh youth group coffee house yeah. in uh, Fayetteville Tennessee so to, to to ground it properly in the sort of the the, the culture uh there uh spiritual warfare as they called it was kind of a, a big deal in those days and maybe it still is in many circles uh, and this was the notion that demons and angels are actively waged in an invisible war for individual souls right so it's the screw tape letters by way of frank peretti's this present darkness which was like a, a christian young adult book about this kind of spiritual warfare okay you know angels trying to get you to do one thing demons trying to do the other and then like having a big duke out fight yeah, yeah. Uh, and all of this too by way of youthful enthusiasm to change the world and interact with a hidden magic of the world so long story short there's a guy at this coffee house he wasn't feeling so hot so a soft exorcism i guess you might call it was performed to free him of the demon so there were no weird voices there's no acting out nobody was tied down or anything it was just some prayer uh 
and I, and I don't want to knock it too much because looking back on it, you had a case where two people reached out to a third person and at least temporarily soothed mental anguish via this mild religious practice, this mild religious experience. But of course, it all depends on what was actually going on with that young man in the back of the coffee house. Sure. What was he, you know, what was he actually experiencing or wrestling with? And did this actually help or just cover it up or, or give him, uh, you know, a problematic narrative? To wrestle with, because ultimately, like, that's what your story is about. Something traumatic occurred and you had no frame of reference for what could be occurring except for this supernatural narrative. Yeah, absolutely. It was like it was the prime narrative that I was hearing at the time. And so, of course, I turned right to that. Um, yeah, I think that, like, you know, we should point out too at the top of this episode, we try to do this and any topic we're covering, whether it's, um, you know, ghost marriages or uh, talking about combat stimulation drugs in the military. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be something that is like in Robert and my particular lifestyle. And again, frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're, we're trying to look at this, you know, positively and open minded. So in the sense of exorcism and demon possession now as an adult, I, I don't personally believe in it, but I believe that those people believe, uh, and that makes it just as real, right? And, yeah. uh, in the situation that you're describing, that person m- was maybe depressed and maybe he was getting the only help that was available to him in his community, right? Yeah. And maybe it was a, you know, we look at that and we might go, Oh, that's weird. Or that was a little backward, mm-hmm. but, but you know what? Like maybe that helped make that guy feel better just for one day. Yeah. And I'm guilty of having, uh, pull that story out before to sort of be like, oh, wasn't this weird? And, you know, looking back at, back on it, I have to also, you know, realize the things about it that were not weird of all, weird at all given the context. Yeah. And this is going to be especially important in today's episode because we're going to be talking about demon possession and exorcism. We're also going to be talking about another less known practice called addercism, but it's all going to be in frame of reference of mental health care and psycho- psychological practice today. Mm-hmm. And one of the major theories that we're going to cover is that in order to be effective as a mental health professional in situations like this, you have to be open and understanding of the cultural beliefs of demon possession if you're going to help the person, even if you just think, well, they're schi- they're actually schizophrenic or they actually have uh, uh, an identity disorder. Right. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll condense this back down and, and return to that later. But there's another reason why we wanted to do this episode mm-hmm. this week. We've been talking about doing this for a while now, but we chose to do it this week because it's the 43rd anniversary of the movie, The Exorcist. So that's why Robert asked, what was my experience? What was, what's your experience with that movie? Uh, I think I saw it for the first time when I was in college, like watched it by myself yeah. on a, like, you know, a DVD or maybe even a VHS. I can't remember. And, and being, you know, profoundly creeped out. Not, but so, not so much by the big moments of, uh, you know, in your face demonic possession, but yeah. the smaller moments. Uh, some of what, some of which I strongly remember, like, you know, there being like a Bazuzu statue that the child Reagan has made in the yeah. background. Uh, stuff like that I found far more compelling. And also the, the character, uh, um, arc is uh, pretty good in that too. Yeah, I don't think that movie is celebrated enough. I mean, it is celebrated a lot, and especially in the horror community, but and not enough for the 
excellent way it builds dread. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. It, I agree with you. It's not the like, uh, special effects makeup and the head spinning around and vomit flying around the room. It's like it builds dread so carefully over the course of the movie that by the time you get to that stuff, it's effective. Yeah. And it's crazy to look back and realize, yeah, this film came out December 26, 1973. This was a holiday release. Yep. And, uh, yeah, what a Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> I take, mean, it was take your grandmother to that over the holiday. <laughs> I know. I mean, it was, I mean, it was still the holidays. It was granted it was the Nixon yeah. years. Uh, and that was, that's interesting because I started thinking about that. It's like, all right, maybe there's something about it being the Nixon, uh, years. Yeah, maybe this came out. And, uh, when did Blatty's book come out? It was a couple years before that, right? Yeah, I believe so. Okay. I don't remember the, the date offhand, but the, for the audience, the, the movie is based off of a supposed nonfiction book by William Peter Blatty, right? Or it's sort of how, how, how authentic I, is, does he recognize it as? I have not. I've read some Blatty, but I've never read The Exorcist. So yeah. I can't really, really speak to it all that much. I, I think that he was a believer and my understanding is that the book was somewhat fictionalized and the movie was even more fictionalized. Okay. Well, the, the movie is interesting when you start, uh, uh, piecing it apart. I actually ran across a really cool article on history today, uh, about the exorcist. Oh yeah. Uh, here's a quote from it. Indeed, Father Marin's warning to beware of the demon's voice as it mixes lies with truth is exactly the sort of thing President Nixon had begun to say about the American media as it probed the breaking story of Watergate. Huh. This is very interesting, especially because of the episode on heroism that we are also doing this yeah, week. Which also we talked about Nixon, Nixon and uh, Captain America at the time. Wow. Yeah. Man, that that. It's interesting, you know, I wasn't alive then, but that, that presidency really seems to have permeated out into the popular culture yeah. hive mind. This uh, particular article also touched on the conflict between science and the forces of darkness, which of course is a, a theme in the, the movie. Yeah. Uh, but there's this one scene, and I completely forgot about this, but, uh, Reagan, the child, uh, predicts the death of a U.S. astronaut at a party. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I've, I've completely forgotten about that, but this is another area where modern, Science is is up against darkness. You know, it's dealing with modern science's inability to treat something that is ultimately a spiritual malady. Uh, yeah. It's a fun read. It's uh, by an author uh, by the name of Nick Cull, and it was published uh, back in uh, the year two thousand. So, The Exorcist is everywhere. I mean, we we return back to that, and I think still today, most people's unless they've participated in an exorcism. Their understanding of exorcism is probably the one from that movie, right? right? It's very Catholic in ritualistic nature, uh, and, uh, it, it, it adheres to that kind of, you know, model. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, what's interesting is we're coming back around on it again. There's a lot of demon possession stuff in popular culture again. There's an exorcist TV show right now. Mm-hmm. In fact, I believe the week that this episode's publishing, uh, the TV show will have just ended. Uh, and I've been watching it and it's, it's kind of okay. I was surprised. Yeah. I, I thought it was going to be awful, but I, uh, <laughs> it really surprised me. Huh. Yeah. Um, it's nowhere near as scary as, <laughs> as the movie, but it's got some interesting stuff going on in it. So we're revisiting exorcism. And when I say we're revisiting it, that's because stuff to blow your mind has previously covered exorcism and cognitive disorder in a 2011 episode, mm-hmm. uh, with you and, and former host Julie Douglas. And I went back and listened to that episode in preparation for this one. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a, so if you, if you haven't heard that episode, maybe go back and listen to that it really lays the groundwork for, 
um, what we mean by exorcism and its connection to mental health. Yeah, but the you know don't stop listening now. This we're pretty self-contained in this episode. Yeah, well. no spoilers yeah. for that episode. Yeah, this isn't, episode. It, is, it isn't so much a part one, part two. But no. you know, if you dig this episode, you may uh, go back and check that one out. We'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode. It's stuffthebloomind.com. So, what do we mean then? What's the definition of possession? Well, when we hear that term, what we're commonly referring to, and keep in mind, possession and exorcism are culturally almost universal they they mm-hmm. they occur all over the world yeah no matter how how much your mind is informed by that idea of like the catholic priest yeah at the bed of the possessed individual uh, it goes beyond that it refers to a hold exerted over a human being by some external force that's more powerful than they are so depending on the culture we're talking about demons maybe ghosts animistic spirits gods or even alien entities uh, I just watched a kind of like crappy but good horror movie from 2009 called The Unborn. Did you ever see that one? No. Is this the one that, um, oh, the, the guy who wrote, uh, the Blade movies did? Yeah. It's David Goyer. Okay. Yeah. He wrote it and directed it. Yeah. Uh, and it, the premise is, it's like, th- this was at around that period of time where Hollywood was like, oh, we got to do exorcism movies, but not Catholic ones. So <laughs> there was a Dybbuk in it, the, um, the, Jewish tradition oh, of okay. uh, possession. And uh, the idea was there was a Dybbuk that was like uh, harassing this young girl. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it's not that great of a movie, but to goes to show you there's a lot of different things. It's not just demons. Sometimes it's your ancestors, maybe, or sometimes uh, the the idea of aliens uh, figures into it. Right. So it's, but the, the same central premise is common almost across all human cultures. Uh, it's often accompanied by something that's referred to in psychology as a possession trance. Now, recent studies on this phenomenon have located it within a wider social and historical context. So they're basically trying to describe it as a way that identity, maybe gender and our bodies are negotiated within our cultures. And these practices are found in Asia, Africa, uh, America, Latin America, Europe and Oceania. Now, exorcism has a different definition. This is the spiritual practice. It has a very long history, and it's common in many cultures, like I said. Its aim is to purposefully expel these demons or evil spirits from the person or place that they've invaded. And and as I said, we all often think of the Roman Catholic one. I wonder pre-exorcist if people thought about Catholicism in relation to this. I don't know. I mean, I, I it didn't occur to me just now, but you have a very basic biological parallel to this. The idea of eating something bad and then vomiting it up. Oh, yeah. You know, or, yeah. uh, you know, or you're digesting something bad and it has to be, uh, you know, expelled out the other end. But... That's basically the premise. Something right. bad has got in you and we got to get it out of you. Yeah. All right. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to roll with some familiar notes here on this one because uh, kind of come back to, to cultural scripts a lot when we're talking about the supernatural. But I think it is important to just drive home again that exorcisms and the paranormal experience of possession adhere to specific cultural scripts. So the scripts vary. You got the alien gray script. You got the little people, the forest, the ghosts, the devils, and there you know be different versions of these wherever you go. But they provide a ready-made, culturally accepted, or at least semi-accepted set of explanations and qualifying information to explain what and why uh, this is occurring, as well as a means of potentially addressing it. So something weird happens. 
I want answers. Here is a ready-made answer and perhaps some hope. Very similar to your experience with the snow blindness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this reminds me, like, um, there's, like, two different kinds of horror right now. There's, like, the weird, right? Which mm-hmm. is like, there, there's, you're left with no answers and it's utterly a bizarre experience and you don't really have any rule book, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but even that's kind of an answer. It's like saying, you don't well, know, but we can't know. Yeah, exactly. That's true. It's very zen. Uh, and then there's like the very like rule oriented horror, like a silver bullet will kill a werewolf right. or a wooden stake will kill a vampire. And here's how to expel a demon who's possessing somebody's body. We need to get a hold of this specific ritual. And it's, it's like a D&D like manual or something like that at the end right. of the day. Exactly. Yeah. And as you're trying to to make sense of it all, this is where confirmation bias comes into picture, into the picture. Right? You've, you've, you've dragged in this uh, cultural script. And uh, to sum it all up, I'd like to read just a quick, excellent summation uh, of confirmation bias from uh, The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives by uh, Leonard uh, Mladenau, uh, who also did some screenwriting. He wrote some episodes of, I think, Star Trek Next Generation Is that right? and uh, MacGyver. Oh, oh. But the he, old MacGyver, right? Old MacGyver, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he said, uh, quote, When we are in the grasp of an illusion, or for that matter, whenever we have a new idea, instead of searching for ways to prove our ideas wrong, we usually attempt to prove them correct. Psychologists call this the confirmation bias, and it presents a major uh, impediment to our ability to break free from the misinterpretation of randomness. To make matters worse, not only do we uh, preferentially seek evidence to confirm our preconceived notions, but we also interpret ambiguous evidence in favor of our our ideas. And this can be a big problem because data are often ambiguous. And by ignoring some patterns and emphasizing others, our clever brains can reinforce their beliefs even in the absence of convincing data. Mm. So, you know, you have, you know, you have this checklist for exorcism. You have the script for exorcism. You have your, your own experience and you end up cherry picking where they line up. Yeah. And then just to ensure that this is the path, this is the answer, this is how I'm going to get out of this. Yeah. And and when you think about it in that regard, too, it's even more human, right, of an mm-hmm. experience. It's easier to understand why someone frames the experience as a possession, right? Right. Um, because that's easier to understand than what may actually be going on mentally. Right. But, of course, it's. I think it's also important to to point out that a a cultural script is only going to be useful, even cherry picking how it matches up. Mm. It's only going to be useful if it fits the underlying, you know, reality of the individual. It doesn't matter how bizarre or mundane the glove is, right? The glove still has to fit a hand. There's still a hand underneath it. That's true. So that's something to keep in mind as we move forward and we start talking about the psychological uh, side of what is occurring. Well, let's get into that. So there's a lot of literature that examines possession and exorcism as a phenomenon, especially alongside modern mental health practices, like so much that Robert and I could not possibly have read it all for this episode, but we did our best. An excellent source for reviewing it, though, that I found is by Jay Body, and it comes from uh, an article he wrote in 1994 called Spirit Possession Revisited. This was published in the Annual Review of Anthropology. This is over 20 years old, though. So, you know, I have to admit, like, I couldn't really find a more current literature review, although I did find a conference paper that was published this year by a guy named Joel Sanford. Uh, and his paper was called Facing Our Demons, Psychiatric Perspectives on Exorcism Rituals, runner up because it was a conference paper. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he did a really good literature review in there as well. So both of those informed what we're going to bring to you today. Uh, but the arguments basically vary from possession leading to a form of group therapy. So seeing exorcism, the act of an exorcism as being group therapy on behalf of the individual okay. or something like the state itself of being in the possession trance as being induced by individual stress. But attention in the literature itself mainly goes to local contexts, the cultures that are there and the power of the human imagination. Getting back to this, what we were speaking of earlier about cultural scripts, researchers have found that possession seems to be connected to the human endeavor of figuring out ourselves and our identities. Basically, who am I? While simultaneously challenging forms of power in various cultures and in location. Uh, so. So, for instance, uh, the episode that you and Julie did on this, the the major kind of touchstone example that you were using was what if somebody is in a culture where it's not acceptable to be homosexual, they have homosexual urges, and they have this cognitive dissonance between what they're feeling and what they have learned and believe is morally wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so that creates this dissonance that can sometimes lead to something like the possession trance. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the, the cognitive dissonance take on it is, OK, look at exorcism. It's an outside force is making me do, say or think something that I believe to be wrong. And if you remove the supernatural element there, then you have a scenario that looks this way. I did said or thought something that I believe to be wrong. And with this, without, you know, without any kind of supernatural player in it. But in, in, in this, you know, you have to somehow find a, a way out of it. Right. Right. So this led to a point where in 1992, there was even a proposal to include, uh, quote, trance and possession disorder in the official listing of the American Psychological Association's DSM-4. Uh, so the DSM, we talk about it all the time on this show. It's basically like the handbook of, of, of mental disorders. I believe we're on the fifth one right now. Uh, and this uh, proposal was put forth by somebody named Etzel Cardena. But it wasn't approved. Uh, the whole thing was controversial because of dissociative identity disorder, schizophrenia, and other diagnoses, which in and of themselves have controversy that we'll talk about later. But trance and possession disorder would have identified the psychosis as a diag, it would give it a diagnosis basically that could cross culturally incorporate clearer perspectives to allow us to understand human consciousness and identity. So it was essentially embracing this idea mm -hmm. that the possession trance was uh, universal across cultures. Now, a specific example that I found of psychology trying to understand possession as mental illness within the context of the actual patient's beliefs is in Jay Mercer's 2013 study in mental health, religion, and culture. And in there, he seeks to provide counselors and clinicians with an understanding of specifically Pentecostal exorcism so that those people can help assist with conventional mental health treatments. Mm -hmm. So this is what he, uh, he uncovered, uh, the argument in the paper is essentially that mainstream mental health professionals should have sufficient understanding of, in this case, Pentecostal deliverance principles. Deliverance is what they refer to as their exorcism ritual uh, in order to be effective. Well, the idea here, this is the language. This is this is the this is the the, the way they're understanding what's wrong with them. So you yeah. need to be able to speak with them about it on their terms. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the Pentecostal view itself 
is that mental illness, including autism, bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, etc., all have their direct causes in the presence of demons within a victim's body. Now, demons in this belief system can be drawn by a person's intentional participation in sinful actions, for example, or the sins of related people around them, or even accidental events. So, for instance, uh, one of the things they mention here is that in that in that faith, adopted children are considered more likely to be afflicted by demons, uh, as are those who consider abortion as an option. Illnesses of those of close people or pets even can invite demonic entry through grief. So like if you grieve too much, it like makes you vulnerable to demon possession. And uh, obviously, as you know, you and I are familiar with from our upbringings, any association with the occult is also thought to attract demons. And finally, a curse can bring demonic forces upon a person or family. So I just said all those things. And some of you listening might have been like, oh, that's all ridiculous, right? Well, whether it is or isn't, if you're a mental health professional that's trying to help somebody dealing with this specific uh, disorder mm-hmm. in within this faith, you still need to understand that those are the things they believe, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and like everything you described here, especially with the, you know, the, the role of, of sinful acts yeah. and all of this, it, it just seems so steeped in cognitive dissonance. And right. in order to reach them, you kind of have to, they, they've built a barrier out of the cognitive dissonance that you have to be able to break through. Uh, back in uh, the 1950s, social psychologist Leon Festinger, who uh, coined the term, uh, he argued that there are three ways to deal with cognitive dissonance. All right. And I think the, you know, easy way to think of this is, oh, I have, uh, you could say, oh, I, I have, homosexual feelings but but i uh but i'm a member of a faith that uh that says that that is sinful right, right? so one thing you can do is a person may change one or more of their behaviors or beliefs so you can either change what you believe to where it lines up with how you are or you change how you are to line up with your belief. Sometimes that's an option. Sometimes it's not. Number two, uh, the second idea here is that a person might try to acquire new information or beliefs to increase the agreement between the two, which will lessen the overall dissonance. So this might be, all right, I'm maybe I'm not going to go from Pentecostal to atheist. Right. But maybe I'll find another like branch of Christianity. Easier in, transition. Yeah. It's somewhere where I. I can fit in as me and still hold to these values. Sure. And then number three, a person may try to forget or play down the importance of the cognition that's butting up against the contradictory cognition. So if you can't change the way that you think or behave or you're unable or unwilling to change the thing that you believe, the only solution is to go with two or three. Yeah. And number two is uh, is where we see the possibility of demonic possession, because you might not change from Pentecostal to, um, you know, uh, you know, United Church of Christ or something, you might just say it's the demon. You might choose right. that mode. Well, uh, so in the Pentecostal faith, the results of such demonic possession. And again, this is I don't I don't have personal experience with Pentecostal faith. This uh-huh. is from the paper. The results are linked to an extensive list of physical and mental ills. So these are essentially symptoms infertility, obesity, asthma, seizure disorders, ADHD, schizophrenia, alcoholism and drug use, uh, and disobedience or nightmares in children are attributed to demonic activity. That makes me think of sleep paralysis and night terrors, which we've discussed before. Um, but Mercer in this paper goes on to describe deliverance, the entire ritual. I'm not going to go through it here. Definitely check out the paper if you're interested. Um, but it's worth 
for him, the idea is basically, this is a manual I'm giving you mental health professionals so that you can be involved in this process. Like if you have a patient that comes to you and says, I need help, but I do believe this and this is my faith system, then the mental health counselor can turn to Mercer's paper, read through it and have a better understanding of what they are getting into. Okay. And how to basically communicate with their patient. So why don't we take a quick break? And when we get back, let's talk about a term that maybe you haven't heard before that's in relation to demon possession, sort of the opposite of exorcism, and it's called addercism. All right, we're back. So the classic idea is someone comes to the exorcist and says, hey, I got this demon in me. This demon's making me do things that I don't want to do, make me think things I don't want to think. Can you rip that sucker out of me and we can go our separate ways? Yeah. What happens when you go uh, to the the addressist instead of the exorcist? Yeah, well, it turns out uh, that it's that this is a, a practice that was observed by a guy named Luke de Hoish, and he's the one who uh, really coined the term addressism. He saw it as the opposite of exorcism, where the practices are aimed at integrating the spiritual entity into a person or place instead of expelling it. So this is it's kind of like the dark crystal scenario. Instead of uh, instead instead of killing off the Skeksis or driving the Skeksis away, you realize that the 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 mystics and the Skeksis should be melded together into one uh, <laughs> idea. Being. Yeah, yeah, somewhat, yeah. Um, it's regarded as having a healing beneficial practice, and it implies an open attitude toward what is normally perceived as negative and antagonistic to understand its real nature. So let's um, place this within the context of the movie The Exorcist, okay. what everybody understands the most. So uh, in this case, the priests would come in to Reagan's bedroom, and she'd be flailing around and vomiting and stuff, and they would accept that malevolent entity within her and try to uh, beneficially integrate it either into her or into themselves. Now, it seems like it's more often from what I was reading that the the practitioner of addressism absorbs the spirit into themselves, integrates it into themselves than the other way around. Although there was some uh, contrary stuff going on in the in the literature. Hoysh himself describes addressism as accommodating these spirits and establishing them within a medium, which is usually like a shaman in form. Okay. Um, now you're wondering, who's this De Hoish guy? Why should I care, you know, uh, what he says? Well, he was a Belgian polymath who focused on anthropology and filmmaking. He was pretty well known within France's academic system. He, he was a passionate proponent of Claude Levé Strauss's structuralism, and he applied that in his study of cultures in Central Africa, of which he was an expert uh, on their religions, myths, and art. So while he was studying these, like he went in person to these uh, uh, addercism or addercistic rituals, uh, he would, he basically, you know, saw them as a version of the possession trance that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And he argued that it was a psychophysiological state that involved a transformation of the state of consciousness. Now, within this, this is where he brings in shamanism, which I know is is something that you're very interested in and has been discussed on the show before. Um, he tied that together with possession and dreams and sleepwalking and modern hypnosis. And he also drew parallels between altered states that are brought on by techno music, at least that's what he referred to it at the time, <laughs> uh, and trances, and, which maybe they didn't have the term trance music back uh-huh. then. Uh, in fact, he saw dance and music as being a universal artistic manifestation that 
often accompanied states of trance linked to possession or shamanism. Uh, and he also notes, don't forget that shamanism, especially self-induced shamanistic trances, usually involve some kind of hallucinogenic substance. So that th- that just uh, landed on two of your major interests, right? Shamanism and uh, dance music. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, there are a number of things lining up uh, for me here. Yeah, uh, because all of these things have 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 proven transformative powers when it comes to, uh, you know, to, to consciousness and, uh, and perceptions of reality. So addressism is basically what he calls deliberate possession. The idea is that the shaman's goal is to retrieve the abducted soul from quote, the sickness from the gods. And they basically root out the undesirable element that resides in the person's body now, in an exorcism, a shaman would drive out that undesirable spirit. But in adorcism, they enter a trance themselves to extirpate the spirit from their patient and incorporate it into themselves to then be expelled afterward. Now, note for a second here, exorcism and adorcism are not practiced simultaneously, at least according to Dehoish, uh, and they're totally separate, distinct rituals. A shaman controls and confronts these spirits while the possessed is subjected to them. Okay. So it's, it's basically ghost busting. I'm taking the ghost from you and I'm putting in, in my, yeah, I've it, got my trap. trap. Yeah. 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 Uh, and Addison, and I am the ghost trap. <laughs> I'm the physical ghost trap. Yeah. Uh, and so again, like he connects it to shamanism, uh, and he sees that the shaman, this is what allows them to acquire spirit allies. It's basically the same premise that we, you know, we, we sort of understand as shamanistic practice around the world. DeHoyce distinguished shamanism and possession as being totally separate things. Now, this was followed up on in 2010 in an article in the Journal of Anthropology, basically saying that in cultures with male-dominated religions, Women are subject to illness that is attributed to spirit possession and that to treat this, the process of adorcism is often used and that this is a form of, quote, domesticating the spirit. It's argued that these afflictions and their treatment serve then as an instrument that retains male power. So, for instance, by applying adorcism to Christian, Muslim and Buddhist possession settings, the authors of this paper essentially said that the distinction between it and exorcism isn't isn't necessarily as contradictory as it would first appear that they're both tools of basically ensuring male dominance. And I thought that was interesting. And it was written, I believe, after DeHoish died. Now, I want to bring in one other theory here that is that complicates things. We talked about possession and we talked about adorcism and we're also, you know, circling around exorcism. But one thing that I hadn't heard of and doesn't really make its way into the exorcist lore actually until the TV show recently. They did, uh, they yeah. did bring this into the TV show. Well, you, you got a longer show run. You got to yeah. bring in new ideas, right? Is the idea of demon integration. Uh, and according to the Catholic belief system, there are different stages of attachment during demon possession. There's oppression, obsession, possession, and finally integration. And the last stage occurs when a person who is, you know, being subjected to this chooses to accept the demon. And I thought this was particularly interesting because we use the same term integration when we're referring to one of the treatments for dissociative identity disorder, 
a, a disorder that is often used synonymously along with possession. It's interesting because this, this list that you, uh, you mentioned here, possession, oppression, uh, obsession, possession, and, and integration, depending on what your individual demon might be, yeah. I could see this is a very positive, uh, uh, journey to go on, you know, yeah, it's like, exactly. oh, this, this thing that I am, it's, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's oppressing me. All right. Now I'm, I'm just really into it is, is all that's going on. And then uh, it's, it's, it's taking over me a little bit. And then, oh, it's just a part of who I am. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really interesting that these terms overlap. Now I couldn't find a lot of like hard, re- you know, peer reviewed research on demon integration. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I found were like Catholic websites, uh, interviews with uh, supposed exorcists, things like that. Right, and you get into the very like the fringy kind of uh, yeah. area here. Uh, basically, from what I could tell is like the idea here, at least in the Catholic belief system, is that integration is a bad thing, right? Like if a demon integrates with your human personality, uh, the, your, your soul's dead. And, and in the TV show, they basically say something to that effect. They're like, oh, like if this goes too far. They're going to integrate and then she's lost forever. Something to that effect, right? Um, But we see it very differently in a mental health situation. Yeah, yeah, very, very differently. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will dive into uh, disassociative identity disorder. All right, we're back. So, okay, there are obvious parallels between what we have been calling possession so far uh, with what is now referred to as dissociative identity disorder. But let's give a little bit of a primer for everybody on what we mean by that when we're talking about it in psychological terms. It's characterized as an involuntary escape from reality with a disconnection of thoughts, identity, consciousness, and memory. And it's estimated that 2% of people experience a dissociative disorder of some type, not dissociative identity disorder. That's a subcategory. The symptoms usually develop in response to a traumatic event in order to help the person keep their memories of that event under control. And treatment involves a combination of psychotherapy and medication. Now, symptoms of this can include memory loss, out-of-body experiences, depression, anxiety, and a lack of self Identity sounds like possession, right? A lot of the similar symptoms, mm-hmm. uh, or at least to possession trance as it's referred to. Now the DSM identifies that there's three types of dissociative disorders. There's dissociative amnesia, and that's where your main symptom is that you, you don't remember important information about yourself. There's depersonalization disorder, which involves ongoing feelings of detachment as if you're kind of like watching your life play out mm-hmm. uh, as a movie. And then there's dissociative identity disorder. And that's the one we're going to focus on here. It was known as multiple personality disorder until 1994. We don't use that term anymore, at least in we, at least in the psychological discipline, they don't use that term. And it's characterized by the patient alternating between identities. These identities can alternately take control of the individual so they experience memory loss. So there might be some of that amnesia part. So it's important to note that this isn't a proliferation of separate identities. The way we now define it as identity fragmentation, which is, I think, why they changed the terminology. 
It's a pretty controversial diagnosis, too. Um, yeah, this is kind of the realm of superstar psychology and TV movies. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, isn't there some movie coming out soon with um, uh, the guy who plays Professor X in those X-Men movies? Not Patrick Stewart, the younger one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, James McAvoy, mm-hmm. where he's got, like, uh, dissociative identity disorder and, like, captures a bunch of teenage girls. Did, have you seen the trailer no, for this? I haven't. It's some, like, horror movie that's coming up. So, yeah, it's very much, like, popular in pop psych, uh, especially as applied to like storytelling. All right. But it's, it's more that actual, instead of like, Oh, I'm a pirate. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. It's the, these are different fragments of who you are already. So it, in some of those interpretations, you can see where they might line up with, uh, with this idea that you're becoming separate people, but yeah. we're, we're all this kind of, uh, assembly of separate people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, and here's the thing. Brain imaging has corroborated identity transition in some patients. So there is some empirical evidence that it, it it's it's real. Mm-hmm. Today, we understand it as a failure to integrate the various aspects of our identity, our memory and our consciousness into a singular self. Personality states Within this now, they're referred to as alters, and they have characteristics that distinctly contrast the individual's primary identity. Now, how does this all relate to demon possession? Okay. In 1981, a guy named M.G. Kenny, I think this is the first person who published a paper linking the two things together. And Kenny described multiple personality, because that's what it was described at the time, as being surrounded by a halo of the occult. He reviews in this paper the intellectual history of the relationship between dissociative identity disorder and possession, and then he outlines all the relationships. And basically his conclusion is that the connections between these two things became suspect as the belief in possession declined. So it was, it was like the, um, the actual like psychological disorder, uh, was sort of tainted by possessions, sort of occult background. So basically we got a better script to describe what was happening. And then we got an even, even better script uh, to describe what is happening. Yep. And so that for a while led to a decline in interest in multiple personalities and the frequency of their reported cases. But the DSM-5 does state the following about dissociative identity disorder. And I'm quoting this here. It says, in settings where normative possession is common, the fragmented identities may take the form of possessing spirits, deities, demons, animals, or mythical figures. So there's a pretty direct connection there in the manual of psychiatric disorders that connects demon possession to this particular disorder. Now, in a study conducted for the Journal of Psychology and Theology, researchers found that dissociative identity disorder lined up with cases of possession that they looked at as well. And they looked at 47 incidents of exorcism that were conducted on 15 different patients. And they found five types of exorcism that used eight methodological factors within their, you know, context. And these included the patient's permission that the exorcism was non-coercive, uh, active participation by the patient, an understanding of dissociative identity disorder dynamics by the exorcist, implementation of the exorcism within the context of psycho- psychotherapy, the compatibility of the procedure with the patient's spiritual beliefs, 
incorporation of the patient's belief system and encouraging the patient's independence regarding exorcism. So you can see here, like where this is going there in that paper, they're sort of making the argument that the exorcist should be aware of the psychological theories surrounding dissociative identity disorder. Mm-hmm. In these other papers we talked about earlier, they're basically saying, well, the mental health professionals should be aware of the ritualistic practices of exorcism. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're sort of trying to get these parties to meet in the middle for the benefit of their patients. Now, another study that I looked at uh, in the 2001 Journal of Psychology and Theology that examined incorporating the patient's view of the perceived demons into their therapy. So by empowering their spirituality and going along with the exorcism, there's case studies that have shown both positive and negative results. So the idea is use non-coercive methods within the patient's own worldview while still understanding that there's psychological dynamics probably associated with dissociative identity disorder going on. Now, whether or not you're talking about a demon or you're talking about an alter personality, leave that to the patient is essentially the argument of this paper. Okay, so don't don't engage and encourage it beyond what is useful to communicating with the patient about their problems. Yeah, exactly. Now, this leads us to integration. So remember, you know, before the break, we referenced that integration in the Catholic faith is very different from integration that's seen as a a potential treatment for dissociative identity disorder. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean exactly? This is, again, something that I had difficulty locating like a really solid definition of. It seems like something that the discipline is in the process of, um, I guess, negotiating and trying to decide about whether or not like it has official designation. Mm-hmm. But there's an article that I found uh, for something called the Sidron Institute, which is a nonprofit that says its mission is to help people recover from trauma and dissociative disorders. And it was written by a woman named Rachel Downing. Uh, she writes the following about integration as it relates to dissociative identity disorder. It's worth noting too, she is both a trained therapist and a fully integrated former dissociative identity disorder patient. So she's huh. speaking from experience as well as expertise. The way she talks about it is that integration, it's not really understood as a treatment and it's, it's controversial both with therapists and patients alike. Some patients express fear of integration, uh, and they see it as being uh, disrespectful of the role that their alter personalities have played in their own survival. So for instance, like, uh, whatever traumatic event maybe caused the, uh, dissociative disorder in the first place, that personality helped you cope, right? Yeah, like I, I guess the like simplistic example that comes to mind in a lot of this would be like, all right, this individual has they they've splintered, and so like there's normal them and sexy them, right? And yeah. instead of like their sexy self being a part of who they are, it has become separated and is its own thing for whatever reason, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but it could be a survival tactic as well. Like I absolutely. had to separate the sexy side of me in order to, you know, deal with societal norms mm-hmm. or, you know, deal with some sort of trauma. Yeah. Or, you know, some people would say, depending on the cultures, oh, that sexy side of me, that's a demon. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm possessed by that demon and it's making me do those things. Yeah. Um, so therapists 
are encouraged to not actually discuss integration as a possibility until later stages of therapy with dissociative identity disorder patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to Downing, some consider it to be a personal choice. So it it hasn't really been ironed out as like, this is the way to go. It's not like you, there's one path for that kind of therapy and it always results in integration. But the way she defines it is essentially a means of acceptance and ownership for the thoughts, feelings, and memories that are labeled as personalities belonging to, quote, me. Uh, you give up the split that says that something is not me, and you accept all those dissociated aspects of oneself. So it's it, this is a process that occurs in therapy over a long period of time. It's not like a singular event, like... I don't know, like, I'm thinking of like, uh, one of those movies, like, wasn't Sybil that movie from like the eighties, the TV movie about multiple personality disorder? I think so. Yeah. I don't, I haven't like, seen it, but I, I don't remember that movie very well, but I imagine that it had some ending where it was just like, there's some event and she's just like, I'm whole again. I'm integrated, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. that's not how it works. So it's important to distinguish that integration from the, integration that's associated with possession in the sense of, you know, the demon fully taking control of your body. So this now leads to a question here. So we've talked about exorcism, possession, addercism, and all the mental health stuff surrounding these uh, practices. Now, I'm really curious, is are any of these like a form of integration in the sense of integrating dissociative identity disorders. So hmm. like addercism, for instance, when I first heard about it, it, it struck me like, well, okay, this is seen as like a more beneficial, positive kind of therapeutic method. Right. right. Um, but it's not really integration per se. And in that like the, the, the persona, the demon is still being pulled out of the person and, but it's being placed into the shaman. Right. Uh-huh. And then the shaman, I guess, expels it later. Uh, but are there models of that where the shaman brings the two together? Or? Yeah, I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm really curious. Like I couldn't find any literature on the idea of that in, um, any religious culture, like huh. that integration's a good thing. Well, I guess it boils down to the fact that so many of these, like even the multiple personalities to a certain extent, it, it makes an other out of an aspect of yourself. Yeah. And in order for integration to make sense, you have to realize there is no other. These are all aspects of myself. And uh, if you're already playing with the language of the demonic and the spiritual, it might not be uh, at all um, something you would want. Now, certainly there right. are cases where, you know, plenty of uh, traditional beliefs where one intentionally, usually temporarily, like fuses with, say, an animal spirit. Right, right. Well, and that's shamanistic, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that, like... They're calling the spirit to them as an ally, right. fusing with them that way. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's integrative. Is that the right way to describe it? <laughs> uh, it, maybe that's integration. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that they're doing it purposefully. But I wonder, like, I wonder if there's a cultural example of somebody who's considered to be possessed and they sort of like shamanistically take control of that spirit, incorporate it into themselves. And it's seen as an ally then. Huh. It's seen as a good thing. Uh, in the same way that the integration in dissociative identity disorder is seen as, you know, uh, claiming your, yourself as, as having, you know, multiple facets. Huh. Sort of a digest your demons. Approach. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I'm curious about that. 
you know, to, uh, if, to draw a line in the sand here on the, the healing powers of exorcism rituals, uh, I'd like to point out a, a 2014 paper published in the Journal of Religion and Health by Turkish researcher M. Kemal Ermak titled Schizophrenia or Possession. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this uh, already because it caused quite a stir when it came out. Yeah. A, lot, a fair amount of uh, controversy. You sent this to me this morning and my, my jaw dropped. <laughs> yeah, because you read it you and you're like, wait, he's not actually saying the saying what I just thought he said. I mean, yeah. No, he, he actually is. He uh, Here's a quick quote from it. He says, we thought that many so-called hallucinations and schizophrenia are really illusions related to a real environmental stimulus. Illusions are transformations of perceptions with a mixing of the reproduced perceptions of the subject's fantasy with real perceptions. One approach to this hallucination problem is to consider the possibility of a demonic world. So, yes, he goes on to argue to say, what if auditory hallucinations, which are a, you know, a common symptom of a number of different uh, uh, psychological conditions, including schizophrenia, what if these are really demons? So this may sound weird coming from us because we just spent two episodes talking about John D and his communication yeah. with angels and demons. Keep in mind, John D was alive 400 years ago. And at that time, you know, magical ideas like that were inherently connected to math and science to see something like this yeah. published today in like a peer reviewed journal really kind of shocked me because I can see the author having this belief and writing the paper mm -hmm. and maybe even doing it in such a way that is um disciplined. Right. Right. But I would have a really hard time understanding the thought process behind the board at the journal itself that's publishing it. Other than, I guess, like this will get us attention. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it certainly got uh, some attention. And uh, yeah, a lot of people were up in arms over a that he would write this and b that the journal would publish it. Mm -hmm. uh, how, however, Putting that aside and, of course, casting aside any scientific consideration that there are demons. OK, uh, let's do it. Uh, putting all that aside, it is interesting that the nature of schizophrenic voices, these auditory hallucinations that that we hear as voices, they differ from culture to culture with an overall trend in non-Western societies for the voices to take a less negative or even positive uh, spirit. Uh, this relationship was actually brought to light uh, by Stanford University anthropologist uh, Tanya Lurman in a paper published in uh, January 2015 edition of British Journal of Psychiatry. And the idea here is that especially in America, we approach the mind as this this fortress of private thoughts, perhaps the, the last fortress for any kind of privacy, and that the schizophrenic brain is just a cracked vessel and all our secrets will spill out. Hmm. As such, we have a tendency to focus on the strangest and in some cases the most harmful voices in the mind uh, when you know schizophrenia is in play. However, uh, Indians and Africans in this study, uh, specifically you know, uh, individuals in, in India and individuals in Ghana, uh, were influenced by ideas of relationships over individuality and the possibility of benign and positive communications with spirits. Right. So she looked at in this paper, she looked at 20 patients in Ghana, India and in the U.S. Granted, not a huge sample size, but, you know, a starting point. And I think it still serves uh, as a, a pretty good illustration. So in the U.S. patients, 14 of the 20 heard voices that told them to hurt other people or themselves. Five described hearing voices of conflict or battle and none reported positive experiences. Mm -hmm. So all of these schizophrenic uh, 
uh, auditory and hallucination voices, they were all negative. Okay. In India, 13 of the 20 patients heard voices of kin, family members offering guidance, scolding, or telling them to do certain household chores. These voices voices were regarded as good, even if they were demanding or even frightening, and only four out of the 20 heard harmful voices. And in Ghana, 16 patients reported hearing God or another deity, 10 described voices as entirely or mostly positive, and others heard bad voices but insisted that the good voices, usually God's, were more powerful. Only two people uh, in that group said that the voices told them to kill or fight or enact violence. So this can really show you that, like, even though the idea of, like, a possession trance is universal across human uh, experience, mm-hmm. that depending on the culture, what they're what they're going to take away from that is very different, right? Yeah. Um, and it seems to indicate that our culture is inherently... Uh, negative and violent, at least in the sense of like what we're repressing or at least the, the identities that are fracturing. Right. I mean, because even if you're in, in the U.S. patient, even if you're completely putting aside any, you know, visions of the exorcist or what have you, yeah. you still have, you, you're going to have that very clinical, uh, maybe even media driven idea of what, uh, schizophrenia is like, what the, uh, what the, the experience of the voices is like. And it's going to always take that, that negative approach, hmm. or at least that, that's what the, um, uh, the results seem to indicate here. And yet in, in India and Ghana, I'd love to see further research on this, like just do like a cross cultural examination mm-hmm. around the world. But it seems like in India and Ghana, they're very different and sometimes beneficial, maybe. Yeah. Or at least it's like, uh, I, in the paper, she talks about uh, in India, for example, you have, uh, there's a, there's often this case where there'll be the individual that's suffering from voices. And they're kind of regarded as, all right, they're, they're a little weird or they have, you know, they're, they hear voices, but they're okay. You know, it's not a call the authority situation. Right. In many cases. Uh, and it's, it's important to note that these unreal voices that, that, uh, that the, uh, the schizophrenic individual hears, like they can even drown out real world voices, studies have shown. And uh, one of the accepted strategies has always been for the patient to learn to cope with and ignore the voices, in some cases uh, with the aid of, uh, of medication. But but generally, you often hear this this idea that you do not speak back to the, the voices in your head. So that's the opposite of integration. It's basically like an avoidance tactic and conflict resolution. Like instead of yeah. integrating that into your personality and accepting it and communicating with it, you just... Pretend it's not there or, or a or varying levels of straight up exorcism. It's like I'm either yeah. going to drive the voice away with medication and or the, vo- the 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 demon will leave if I just stop paying attention. To yeah, it. right. But there's another approach out there that takes uh, that, that really reminds me of integration uh, a lot more. And that's uh, uh, an example we see with the Hearing Voices Network. Uh, this is an international community of voice hearers founded in 1988 by Dutch social psychiatrist uh, Maurice Rome. And in his model, voices are not signs of illness, but bearers of clues about traumatic histories. So these are metaphorical, emotional storage uh, um, nodes uh, in our minds that need to be worked out, essentially integrated. Yeah. So it's like just just in like the last like, I don't know how long we've been recording, 40 minutes or an hour or whatever. We've struck upon like at least like. I don't know, six or seven different cultural approaches to this idea of possession. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, whether it's an approach that says these are demons or these are ghosts or 
These are mental health issues. And it really seems like, you know, again, bringing it back to what we were saying at the beginning, like the people that believe, regardless of whether or not it's real, they're in pain, like they're ex- yeah. they're experiencing suffering. And in order to help them uh, with that, you really have to approach it from multiple angles. Like you have to be both uh willing to embrace the sort of scientific side of this is what we know about these psychological disorders and how to treat them alongside this is what we know about the patient's cultural beliefs, the uh, context surrounding them and how that may help them as well. Yeah, it really makes the prospect of ghost busting all the more problematic. Because oh, can yeah. you imagine like uh, based on what we've been talking about here, can you imagine an actual ghostbuster? Walking to a house and having to deal with the very, you know, Egon esque descriptions of of what what level spirit this is and how we're going to uh, remove it using this nuclear device versus oh that's the spirit of my grandma that's she's yeah. here because I disappointed her yeah you can't just strap on the proton pack with this like yeah you need to it, it's really like like it seems like you need two people on hand for this like whatever the belief systems version of an exorcist is or a shaman or whatever mm-hmm. right and then like a, a a clinically trained psychiatrist and those people need to be working together collaboratively oh man this is the the next big buddy supernatural <sighs> tv show a ghostbuster yeah and an exorcist whoa buddy cops i think to all right get problems. amc on the phone we've got a pitch <laughs> This will go alongside our historical series about John D. and Edward Kelly. Greenlight it. So uh, in the tradition that we've been trying to keep up in the last couple of weeks, we'd like to throw out a quick shout out to a nonprofit that's related to the topic we're talking about. Maybe uh, this is a topic that resonated with you or maybe, you know, somebody that could use some help. So we wanted to let you know about this group called An Infinite Mind. It's a 501c3 nonprofit, and they're dedicated to improving the lives of survivors with trauma that's based on dissociation with a primary focus on dissociative identity disorder. So if you heard some of the things we're talking about today uh, and you said, hey, you know, that that sounds like somebody I know, uh, maybe this is a group that you could turn to and, and they could help them out. Cool. All right. Well, in the uh, the time being, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of the episodes cataloged for your uh, your use. You'll also find blog posts, you'll find videos, and you'll find links out to various social media accounts. Yeah, and on those social media accounts, we would love it if you would tell us what you think about this whole proposal that we've put in front of you today. Possession, mental health, are they one and the same? Should we bring them together collaboratively for the healing process? Or are they totally different things and are we missing the point in time? Entirely here. Let us know on those platforms, or you can just write us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.